Thank you very much. It's great to be with you these several weeks that my family and I are on vacation here in Georgia. And uh, I wanted to say a couple of words of appreciation. Uh, one is to you, Mr. Fincher. I don't think many churches are privileged to have such consistently good violin playing. We, we get a violin about once every two months or so. And I leaned over to Benjamin a minute ago and said, he's good. You know, listen to this. <laughs> I think that's really, really terrific. So I've enjoyed very much being here, and I want to put an underline under what uh, the speaker this morning said about your pastor, namely that he's a gift to you, not just because that's what it says in Ephesians 4.11, but because having heard him preach only once and give one Sunday school lesson, I think you're very fortunate, because uh, I hear a lot of preaching over the years, and I don't remember too many messages, but it's two weeks now, and I can tell you some key insights from John 10 tonight that I didn't know before about the two different sheepfolds and the way Jesus can be both a shepherd and a door. That's good. That's good preaching. And so uh, I hope you encourage him and give him all the vacation he needs. But I'll try to fill in a little bit tonight. And I ask you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to Acts chapter 20. And as I was pondering what we might talk about tonight, I decided to pick a verse or two that are very, very precious to me and very applicable, I think, to every church, even though I don't know much about this church. Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17 Let me set this on the stage of Paul's life for you and then read a few verses with you and then we'll get into it. Paul spent about three years in Ephesus beginning and building this church. That's longer than he spent anywhere else in his ministry that we know of. And then he leaves and he goes up through Macedonia down to Corinth and probably spends the winter of 56 A.D. in Corinth, about three months, probably wrote Romans while he was there. And then he heads back up through Macedonia. He had intended to cross over, but there was trouble. So he goes back up through Macedonia over to Troas and then gets in a boat and starts to head for Jerusalem. And it says he's hurrying in verse 16 so that he can get to Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. And this is a parenthesis here. I can't help but wonder whether or not Pentecost had already become. How many years has it been now? It's about 56 and Jesus was crucified in about 30 or give or take a year. So 26 years that Pentecost has already become a Christian holiday. A Christian festival and not just a Jewish one. At any rate, Paul, Christian that he is, wants to be there for it. And he's hurrying, which means he's tortured with whether or not to stay in Ephesus for a final greeting. He doesn't think he'll ever see these people again. And he's so eager to get to Jerusalem on time, he won't do it. He skips Ephesus. But he doesn't skip the elders of Ephesus. So he puts in at Miletus, which is about 20 miles south. Now, that's where we pick it up 
in verse 17. So let's read from verse 17, and I'm going to take you down through verse 25. From Miletus, he sent to the, and he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them. So you see, uh, he, he feels he doesn't have time to get embroiled in the whole congregation. You can imagine the kind of farewells that have to be. We went to a family reunion yesterday of 80 people or so. Well, if you had to say goodbye to how many hundreds of people were probably probably converted in Ephesus, he would just be emotionally drained or it, it'd take him too long. And so he says to himself, I must see the elders. They are the they are the pillars in the church. I won't go to Jerusalem and pass these people for the last time without at least talking to the pastors in the church. Now, here's what he has to say to them. Verse 18, they came and he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you all the time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which befell me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance to God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, pick it up here because these are the verses I'm going to talk about, 22 to 25. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, bound in the Spirit, not knowing what shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value. Now, the King James says I'm not moved by any of these things. He's not, he's not deterred by this difficulty in front of him. I don't count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. It might be good for us just to pray briefly and ask God's help in opening the word. Father, these are touching words. They're full of emotion, as Paul says, farewell to his friends with whom he worked for three years for the last time. They are rich with implication for our lives. And how I long to live in the spirit of these verses more myself as a minister of the word. And how I long that every person in this room now see them and hear them in a fresh and powerful new way so that your spirit can transform what needs to be changed in our lives. Bring us more into conformity to Christ and in sync with his spirit and utterly devoted to your cause the way Paul was. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in the verses that I'm not going to talk about, verses 18 to 21, as you noticed, Paul was looking back on what he had done while he was there. In Ephesus, talking about the way he served. Now, in verses 22 to 25, he talks about his present confidence and concern and in his future. And that's what we want to talk about. 
And it, it might do well for us to ask why he would talk to the elders of Ephesus about his own future. And I think the answer is he's not just going on here about himself as though there were some special interest in his life. Like every good Christian, I think, Paul wants to build not only his words into the life of his people, he wants to build his life into their lives. And so he talks about himself. You remember he said to the people in Thessalonica, you became so affectionately endeared to us that we thought it well not only to give you the gospel, but our very souls. And so he wants to do that here. And that's why I think he spends half of his sermon talking about himself. Seems strange. And yet he's endearing, I think, himself to them and imparting who he is as a devoted Christian to those elders and saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, we're going to look at verses 22 to 25. And here's the theme that I want to put over these verses. If, if you go away with anything tonight, go away with this phrase. Faithfulness is better than life. Faithfulness is better than life. And I'm talking about your faithfulness. It's true that God's faithfulness is better than life. In fact, the psalm says the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. But here I'm making the point that your faithfulness is more important than staying alive. And your faithfulness is more important than any quality of life for which you might strive on this earth. That's what I want to get home and explain tonight. And the questions I want to ask in order to make that plain is, number one, what does it mean that faithfulness is better than life? And number two, why is that true? Why is faithfulness better than life? And I see in this text at least three, maybe four, four answers to the question, what does it mean that faithfulness is better than life? So let's get these four answers from the text. My first answer to the question, what does it mean that faithfulness is better than life, is found in verse 22. And it means this. Faithfulness is better than life means being bound by the Holy Spirit to the will of God. Being bound by the Holy Spirit to the will of God. Let's read verse 22. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment I've got the wrong verse here. Where is this bound? Oh, I'm reading the wrong verse. 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem bound. Here's the phrase I want you to see. Bound in the spirit. Now, what does that mean? Now, the versions here divide on whether that word spirit should have a big S or a little s. Your version King James, along with the New American Standard Bible, has a little s. Bound in the spirit, meaning my spirit is bound. It's enslaved to go this way. Now, the Revised Standard Version and the New International Version has a big s. Now, the reason for this is that in the Greek, in the original, you can't tell. It could be either. They didn't capitalize Spirit for God's spirit or our spirit is just the same letters. 
And so you have to judge on the basis of context. And I think the best thing to do in a case like this is to ask, now, what difference would it make here one way or the other? And I ask myself the question, if it's a little less, if Paul is saying in verse 22, I am going to Jerusalem because my spirit has a big uh, rope tied around it, pulling me there. I would ask the question, who tied the rope and who's pulling? And my answer to that would be God and God's spirit. And that would be big ass. And then I thought, well, it doesn't seem to make too much difference then. Because if it's Paul's spirit that's bound, it's the spirit of God binding. And if it's the spirit who is binding, it's Paul's spirit who's bound. So I think we could all agree on this point. To be faithful is to have your heart bound to the will of God by the spirit of God. That's what it means to be faithful. To have your heart or your spirit bound to the will of God by the spirit of God. Let me insert something here from my morning readings while I've been on vacation. I've been meditating on Colossians and uh, reading it through. And I've noticed three places in Colossians where it talks about being assured of the will of God. One of them is in Colossians 1.9. It's a prayer that says, uh, I bow my knee and pray that they might be filled with all uh, wisdom and spiritual, in, filled with the, I better look it up, filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and insight. That's it, I think. But let's read it just to make sure. So from the first day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and insight. So here's Paul praying for the Colossians that they would be not half full, sort of half sure what the will of God is, half full of knowledge about the, the will of God, but all the way full. And then you get over to chapter 4, verse 12, and you find this wonderful fellow, Epaphras. Verse 12 of Colossians, it says, Epaphras, who is one of yourselves, that is, he was from Colossae, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always remembering you earnestly, or literally wrestling for you in his prayers, that you may, number one, stand mature, and number two, Stand fully assured in all the will of God. And I remember saying to Noel the other night. In my ministry, my biggest struggles, frankly, are. I don't know if this is true or not. This is what I experience consciously. My biggest struggles don't seem to be with sin. My biggest struggles are, do I visit this person or this person? Do I read this book or this book? Do I preach on this text? Or this text? Do I discipline my children in this way or this way? Do I treat my wife uh, good this way or good this way? I just have hundreds of decisions I have to make every day in the ministry, all of which are good. And none of which I'm told which to choose in the Bible. The Bible at no given point tells me the time when I should spank with two swaps or five swaps. Just... There's extraordinary wisdom required in just living day-to-day life. And I thought to myself, and when I read that, 
I wonder if I have neglected prayer, extraordinary prayer. Because Paul says he prays all the time that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And Epaphras, the word is agonizomai. Now, if I were to tell you that Greek word, agonizomai, what English word comes to your mind? Agonizomai. Agonize. Agonize. He agonizes. He struggles. He fights for this church that they know God's will. Do you, do you pray that way to know the will of God? I'm not talking about major decisions only. Spouse, vocation faith. I'm talking about the hundreds of things all day long you have to choose between. When to get up in the morning. What to read for devotions. How much to eat. Whether to take a second helping. And, you know, just hundreds of decisions. Do you pray and pray that way that God would show you? I've, the reason I brought along this big fat white book which is The Life of David Brainerd. Ever heard of David Brainerd, that young missionary who died when he was 29? Missionary to the Indians a couple hundred years ago. I'm reading this on vacation for my own soul's sake. And I'm noticing that one of the things that characterized the likes of David Brainerd, who was a sold out missionary to the Indians in New England 200 years ago, is that he really took prayer and fasting to find the will of God seriously. Listen to this. Lord's Day, June 13, 1742, felt something calm and resigned in the public worship. Monday, June 14, felt something of the sweetness of communion with God and the constraining force of his love. How admirably it captivates the soul and makes all desires and affections center in God. Listen to this now. I set apart this day. I've seen this on several Mondays. I think Monday was a fast day for Brainerd, typically. I set apart this day for secret fasting and prayer to entreat God to direct and bless me with regard to the great work I have in view of preaching the gospel to the Indians. He didn't know what group to be sponsored by, for sure. He didn't know when to enter the ministry. He didn't know what Indian tribe to go to. He didn't know how to go about the ministry. He had a hundred questions about his future ministry. And so what did he do? He fasted on Mondays. He prayed all day. And so I said to Noel, I just wonder if one of the reasons that I am so, in my conscience, continually uh, aggravated by indecision on the good things I have to choose between in life and in the ministry is because maybe I don't set some of those days aside the way I should. Point number one, then, in answer to the question, what does it mean that faithfulness is better than life, is this. It means being bound by the Spirit of God to the will of God. That's verse 22. Here's my second answer. Faithfulness is better than life means... That you are content not to know in detail what tomorrow will bring. You are content not to know in detail what tomorrow will bring. Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem bound in the spirit. That was point number one. Here's the second one. Not knowing what shall befall me there. 
You simply are not told in life what tomorrow is going to bring in detail. And part of what it means that faithfulness is better than life is that that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. As I was working on this this afternoon, down in that nice little study that uh, Henry set up, my mind inevitably, this always happens when I get real moody and look in beautiful places, my mind went back to my mother's funeral. <laughs> 1974, my father's 56, my mother's killed in an automobile accident. I can remember sitting under a canopy by the grave singing, Because He Lives, We Can Face Tomorrow. You know that song? Because He Lives, We Can Face Tomorrow. And one of the verses at the end says, I know who holds the future. Because He Lives. As that last verse go, He holds the future and life is worth the living just because He lives. And I can remember sitting there saying, I have no idea what my dad is going to do. He, he's 56. He can't change his clothes by himself. And here we are 15 years later, and miracle upon miracle has come into his life, in my judgment. And so the ignorance is irrelevant. Who cares if we know tomorrow? Because we know God. And faithfulness to God means you don't have to know whether your job will be there tomorrow, whether your health will be there tomorrow, whether your kids will be there tomorrow. You don't have to know. All you have to know is God will be there tomorrow. That's the second thing that it means. Now, third, faithfulness is better than life means you don't forsake Christ when you know That tomorrow means trouble. You don't forsake Christ when you know that tomorrow means pain. Now that's in verse 23. I don't know what's going to befall me, he said in verse 22, except he does know something because the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment And afflictions await me. You you ought to be content with ignorance about tomorrow. And if the Holy Spirit were to say to you, tomorrow is going to be awful. Faithfulness is better than life means you don't cop out. You don't leave the spirit. You don't leave Christ. You don't leave the faith. You don't leave the church. You keep on heading for Jerusalem. Why does Paul tell the Ephesian elders this this experience that he's having with the Holy Spirit? And I think the answer is is because it doesn't matter. He wants to make sure that they know that if they see bleakness on the horizon, it doesn't matter. In fact, you remember back in chapter 14, he said he told them in every church that they must enter the kingdom through what? Anybody remember? Through many? Afflictions or tribulations. You must enter the kingdom through many tribulations. You can count on it. Tomorrow we'll have trouble in it. You're you're ignorant about the details and you know enough that there's going to be trouble. It reminds me just now as I say it, a wedding homily that I preached for Tom and Julie Steller 13 years ago, I think it is now. My wedding text for them was John 16, 33. Anybody know that? In the world you will have 
tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Three points, right? In the world you have trouble. Number two, be of good cheer. Why? Number three, I've overcome the world. You can count on trouble. That's a good marriage text. And it's a good life text. And Paul says, and this amazes me, why would the Holy Spirit do this to Paul? I mean, you'd think tell him once would be enough. It says in every city, he tells him, don't get your modifiers mixed up here. It doesn't say that he told him that he'd have trouble in every city. It says he told him in every city he'd have trouble, that afflictions and imprisonment await him. So the Holy Spirit just keeps telling him and telling him and telling him. And all I can think is that the Holy Spirit really wanted to test Paul's faith all the way along the way. In every city Paul comes in, the Holy Spirit whispers in his ear, I'm not promise you anything easy here. Persecution here, it's going to be persecution in Jerusalem, be persecution in Rome. I called you to suffer. And faithfulness is better than life means when you hear that message, you say, okay, it's all right. I'll go with you. Number four. The fourth answer to what it means then that faithfulness is better than life is that therefore you uh, you set your face not to live for the American dream. Let's read verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, bound in the spirit not knowing what shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, let's let the American dream talk to Paul for a minute here. Wait a minute, Paul. You're getting old. You've been around for a long time. How about letting up? How about a little cottage on the Aegean Sea? Timothy's young. Hand over the reins. Don't you know that when you get to 65, you putt, you play golf, you buy more things, you goof around and spend the last 20 years of your life getting ready for glory by doing nothing. Don't you know that? And 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 uh, making life more comfortable. Come on, don't get out of your head, Paul, this trip to Jerusalem. You likely to get killed in Jerusalem and that crazy harebrained scheme that you might make it to Rome and this wild eyed scheme that at your age you're going to Spain. I mean, don't you know you let up? And Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to Rome. And I wrote in the book of Romans three months ago that they're going to send me to Spain. I'm going to die on the road or in the water. I've been watching more TV here on this trip now than I ever watched because I don't have a television. And I'm glad I get to watch TV on vacations because then I can talk about it for a year or two and then watch a little more and talk about it for a year or two. And the ads, of course, are the best commentary on American culture that there are. And they're not a good commentary in my judgment. Because, you see, the mistake, I look at things so differently, it seems, than the way the questions most people ask is, 
most people look at an ad and they'll say, what's wrong with that? I don't ever ask that question. My question is, does that ad cultivate holiness in me? Does that ad make me hunger for heaven? Does that ad endear my heart to Jesus Christ? Does that ad liberate me from the love of the world? Does that ad make me more radically committed to the cause of Christ? Does that, you see, all hangs on the kinds of questions you ask. How you feel about something. Basically, I get mad at TV ads because they are driving the love of the world home to me. Basically, what TV is designed to do, and, and I don't think TV in itself is evil. I wish Christians were more powerful in their use of it. But as it stands in the hands of the world, TV is designed to endear your heart to the things of the world. I mean, innocent things like hamburgers and cars and things. Things that you, you know, if somebody said, what's wrong with that? I say, look, the question isn't what's wrong with it. The question is, what is the design of this ad? And the design is to wean you away from any wild-eyed dependence on Jesus Christ and make you depend upon the world. Innocent world, I'm talking. Innocent world that I eat hamburgers, I drive a car, I'm wearing this crazy tie tonight that somebody sold me and I fell in love with these little speckles probably because some advertisement, you know. I know I'm talking of this, this driving love me, love me, seek me, seek me that the world says through television. About eight of them between every few minutes of, of show. There's a lot of work to be done. That's why I said the fourth meaning is Faithfulness is better than life means setting your face against the American dream or not letting the American dream drive you. Let me give you some statistics here, or maybe they're not just statistics, but, you know, I, I fear we're in rural Georgia. I don't know if you call this rural Georgia. I call this rural Georgia. I live in a big city, you know, two million people in the Twin City area, and our church is smack downtown. I live eight minutes from the church by foot. So we live in city. I'm a city boy. And so I feel like I'm bombarded every day with all the worst things in the world. And, of course, you got your problems here, too. In fact, I remember, um, who's, the, who's, who's Mr. City with, uh, with the Lausanne Committee? Uh, Ray Bakke. Ray Bakke said one time, the only difference between the city and the country when it comes to evil is just density. That's all. All the evils are here. They're just a little scattered, so you don't feel them quite as tight in on you when you're in middle of Atlanta, say, or Minneapolis. So I don't mean to say you guys are in heaven or paradise, but I sometimes worry that my people who live in the big city, not to mention people who live in rural Georgia, lose touch with the extraordinary need of the world beyond America, beyond America. Let me let me show you what I mean. There are five and a half billion people now, almost a half. We passed the five billion mark back in June of 87, I think. Anyway, there's about five and a half billion people in America. Three billion of these people live in societies or cultures that have been reached by the gospel. That is, a church has been planted so that if those churches did their evangelizing work, these three billion people could be reached with a message they can understand. 
two billion people live in societies, cultures, groups that don't have any church planted so that if those churches were to do their work, these people could hear the gospel in language they could understand. So two billion people now are effectively unreached by the gospel. Two thousand years after Jesus said to this church and my church, go and make disciples of every people group, every nation. There are 150,000 Protestant missionaries in the world today. 95,000 of those come from North America, about 35,000 from other Western countries, and 30,000, uh, it's 85, 35, and 30,000 from non-Western countries. Of those 150,000 missionaries, Protestant missionaries, 90% of them work in the people groups among the 3 billion who are reached already. And 10% of the 150,000 work among the people groups who have the 2 billion people who are not reached. Now, God is doing a great work in the world today. 3,500 new churches come into existence every week, Christian churches. 70,000 Christians are one to Christ. People are one to Christ every day in this world. But when you hear encouraging statistics like that, it's very easy to forget that there are about 12,000 groups or societies of people in which there are 2 billion people who do not have churches yet planted in them that can evangelize them. Now, I say that just to show you that the American dream on television isn't going to tell you one whit about that. They're not going to tell you anything about the most important fact in the world as far as what the church should be doing today. And so it's so easy to see how we get inebriated and made apathetic and drunk by letting the world set our awareness patterns. Give you some more examples. 37% of all professing believers today live in communist countries. 37% of all professing believers live in communist countries. If that sounds high to you, think of China and how big it is. Fourth of the world's population are in China, almost. And then think of the USSR. There are 100 million believers in the USSR, professing believers. That's a third of the population. These 37% of the professing believers in this country, in this world, who live in communist countries are under constant threat from the government. Marxist ideology simply rules out legitimate Christianity. Now, we've seen some remarkable answers to prayer in Russia, in, in the USSR recently. I think glasnost, openness, perestroika, change are answers to the prayers of God's people. And I was over in Manila hearing testimony. Seventy-one Christians got out of Russia to come to Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization in Manila three weeks ago. And the stories we heard are that extraordinary loosening is happening in Russia today. It's wonderful. People have been praying for Russia. We don't know of any religious prisoners today in Russia. Now, I would guess there are some. But the ones we knew about have been effectively released. 
Now that's encouraging. But China is in exactly the opposite direction. We all had our hopes up and then Tiananmen Square, the Chinese who were there in Manila told us that since Tiananmen Square and the slaughter there, the clampdown has been horrendous on the church in China. Hong Kong, which goes back to red China in 1997, is panic-stricken since Tiananmen Square. 1,400,000 signatures went on to a petition that went straight to London within two weeks after Tiananmen Square, saying, isn't there anything we can do to turn this return around? Now, the reason I tell you this is that the television isn't going to tell you this. The world is not going to tell you that one-third of your family is in danger. Now, what would you do if a third of your kids lived in a situation where their daily lives were threatened and their freedoms were threatened? I'll tell you what you'd do. You'd pray like crazy. And that's what the church in America ought to be doing. We live in a fantasy land in America. America is the Disneyland of the universe. It is utterly unrealistic. Here's the third observation. Seventy million people today are on the brink of starvation. Four hundred million consume less than what we would call minimal dietary requirements. Four hundred million. Eight hundred million. These are cumulative figures. They're not separate figures. Eight hundred million total are what would be called people who live in absolute poverty in the world. One half of the children of those people die before they get to five years old. One hundred and ninety-five million of them are Christians. You see, I know that when you talk about poverty in the world, a lot of people just write it off and say, well, if they become Christians, they get rich just like we are. That is so incredibly naive. Just take the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Where did Lazarus go? Where did he go? Abraham's bosom. The rich man went to hell. That's where America's going to go. Our wealth is no sign of our godliness. It's a temptation. According to the parable of four soils, it chokes, it kills. The love of money does. And the danger of riches. There are 195 million Christians at least who are absolutely poor by this world's standards. Christians in this world earn 68% of the world's income. 3% of it goes to the church. And 5% of that 3% goes to any kind of international ministry. Now, the only reason for giving you those three sets of statistics is to just say... That there's a Jerusalem to go to. Paul's on his way to Jerusalem to die if he must die. Which is what verse 24 says. Let's read this great verse 24. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only all that matters. I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
faithfulness to Paul was better than life. Now, the last question we want to ask, and I'll make it real brief here, is why that is so. Why could Paul say, I'd rather die than not be faithful to my trip to Jerusalem? And the answer is that finishing the race means getting the crown. You see, it says in verse 24, I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself because what is really valuable to me is finishing my course. Now, let's just think about that. It's not a school course. It's a what kind of course? It's a race course. Okay? It's a, it's a um, what's a 26-mile race called? Marathon. It's a marathon course. And he's tired. His legs are killing him. And his lungs are heaving. And he's sweating like crazy. And there wasn't anybody to squirt water into his mouth. And the world is saying, here's a green pasture. What are you going to Jerusalem for on this marathon? And every one of you are on a marathon. We're on a race. Now, where's the one other place in the New Testament where the word finishing and the word course are put together? Anybody remember that verse? Verse Second Timothy 4, 7. Uh, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a what? A crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. That's why it is better to be faithful than to live. It's better to be faithful than to stay alive, and it's better to be faithful than to have all that the American dream offers. Paul would say, I'd rather be suffering for Christ in a communist land, if that were my call, than to live, or than to have all of the benefits that America could offer. Maybe the last uh, question to raise would be, What's the assurance in this text that this is so? What's the assurance and the confidence that the crown will really be there? In other words, if if in response to what I'm saying tonight, you go out here and say, like I hope you do, man, I'm so tired of living for myself. I'm so tired of just thinking about things all the time. I want to do something for God. I want to be like... William Carey, who said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I want to do something radical. And Satan says, yeah, but how do you know the payoff is going to be there? There are two phrases in this text that I think are like two giant pillars sustaining the confidence of the crown. One is at the end of verse 24. It says that he wants to complete his ministry, which he received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, let's just take that little phrase, grace of God. Hold on to that, and let's get the other phrase beside it. It's at the end of verse 25, or in verse 25. Now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Let's put these two phrases up here and look at them in closing. Grace of God, kingdom of God. 
first question you ask when Satan tempts you to abandon the path to Jerusalem is, can God really bring joy and life out of that much suffering? And the answer comes back, he's king. He reigns. Kingdom means authority, means rule, means power. And so kingdom means yes. I just love that sermon this morning where he said, I just love it. Because I wrote a poem about this one time of how Mary got to Bethlehem to fulfill Malachi 5. God just went to Rome. (laughs) He went to Rome and said to Caesar, make a law. I got a woman in Nazareth. I want to get to Bethlehem. Make a law for the empire. I love that kind of preaching. So God reigns. He can bring joy and crown out of any life of suffering. I had a dream the other night. I I can't help but tell you this because this fellow in my church was murdered last weekend. And I I wondered if it might have some connection. Young fellow, 25 years old, I think, had been a missionary to the Philippines. But I had a dream about these hostages in uh, the ones we're dealing with Iran about. And I had this horrible dream where they hung the guy with a bag over his head and they cut him just before he died. They cut the rope just before he died and then they started beating him up. And Oh, it's just a horrible scene of torture. And I woke up and I just thought to myself, I wonder if I'll ever have to endure that. Because, you know, we, we tend to, this young man died when he was 29 of an awful lung disease. And so it wasn't a pretty death, coughing up blood and his Sweetheart Jerusha, Jonathan's daughter was there. I mean, it's an ugly, ugly scene. But we tend to, 200 years later, he's a hero. You know, it's exciting. Oh, I hope I can be that brave. I tell you, it's not going to be pretty when you die. Death is ugly. And, and, and most of the martyrs, they died horrible deaths. And, and I just, I just wonder, how they sustain faith that God's going to bring out of this horrible death, beauty and glory. But the answer is he's king. And then the second question you ask after Satan tempts you to abandon the road to Jerusalem is not can God do it, but will he do it? I mean, you're a, you're a Jacob. You're not worth it. He ain't going to do it for you. He might do it for somebody, but he isn't going to get you to glory. You messed up too much. And the answer to that is grace. The kingdom of God and the grace of God are the two things that will carry you through to Jerusalem and to Rome. And maybe you'll get even to Spain. Paul was cut down in Rome. So the the two questions for application as we end are these. Test your faith tonight and ask this question. Do you long to be faithful to Jesus and to the cause of Christ more than you want to be alive? Or to have a house or family or computer? Or whatever you might be wanting real bad right now. And the second question to ask is, is your daily focus and effort in life devoted to enhancing life in this world? 
with all that the TV commends to you to make it enhanced? Or is your thought day in and day out magnify Christ, devote yourself to Christ, live for those people who are without Christ in whatever way you can? Let's pray together. Fathers, we close. Make us more like this great Apostle Paul and make us more like Jesus. I want to dedicate myself afresh to surrendering everything to you. And as we sing that song, I surrender all. May every heart, Lord, make some decisive surrender tonight, right where they are and what they need. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.